Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When it comes to making behavior change around diet and exercise, it's no secret that many people fail in their efforts. My guest would say that's because too often we only concentrate on the things that drive us towards that change, whether willpower or motivation, or the rewards that turn behaviors into habits, and that we need to think more about the obstacles keeping us from making the decisions we desire. Her name is Michelle Seeger, and she's a behavioral science researcher and health coach, as well as the author of The Joy Choice, How to Finally Achieve Lasting Changes in Eating and Exercise. Today on the show, Michelle explains why exercise and eating aren't conducive to becoming habits, at least of the automatic variety, and why it's more helpful to think of these behaviors in terms of life space and choice points. She makes the case for why we shouldn't just focus on what drives behaviors, but also understand what disrupts them, and unpacks four of these disruptors, temptation, rebellion, accommodation, and perfection. Michelle then offers a three-step decision tool for dealing with these disruptors and explains how to develop the flexibility to choose the perfect and perfect option that keeps you consistent and even celebrate and enjoy the decision to do something instead of nothing. After the show's over, check it or show us at awim.is slash Seeger. Michelle joins you now via clearcast.io. All right, Michelle Seeger, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. So we had you on a couple of years ago to talk about your book, No Sweat, which is all about how to become more consistent with your exercise without gritting it out with you know just willpower. And I was telling you before we got on, I, I have referenced that episode so many times on the podcast whenever I have like a fitness person on. It's just a, some really great insights. You got a new book out called The Joy Choice, how to finally achieve lasting changes in eating and exercise. How is this new book a continuation of your thinking from No Sweat? Great. You know, that's the question. And, you know, when I wrote No Sweat, I I didn't think I had any more ideas. So it was kind of a surprise to me when new thinking popped into my head. And here's, here's the relationship. No Sweat was about setting people up for converting exercise from a chore into a gift. And of course, as you know, from what you just said, that has to do with picking activities that you enjoy, that feel pleasurable or satisfying in some way, and definitely not punishing. But no matter how much we set ourselves up for success in exercise and healthy eating or really in any life area, the reality is, is that we are going to confront challenges to our plans and our goals. And so the joy choice 
speaks to that. It explains to people what really gets in our way when we bump up against an unexpected conflict to either our eating plan that we were doing so great on or the exercise or physical activity regimen that we'd been doing. Oftentimes, and so I'll just finish my answer there, that this book is all about how can we joyfully, easily, playfully address those conflicts so that they don't get in our way. Gotcha. And, and I think this, again, this is kind of counterintuitive because or your approach in this book, because I think the typical approach when people have, when they think, well, I got to eat better, I have to exercise regularly, they think, well, I got to make these things a habit. And you make the case that behaviors like diet and exercise, they aren't actually very conducive to habit formation. Why is that? Yes. So first of all, let me just say, I love my flossing habit. I'm so glad I have an automatic habit to feed my dog in the morning or else, you know, he might starve. So habit formation and automatic habits are wonderful for simple behaviors that, you know, we depend on. The problem comes when we try to create automatic habits for complicated, complex behaviors. Um, Habit formation is based on what's called a habit loop, which starts with some type of cue. It could be, you know, walking in the bathroom or brushing your teeth. Then you do the behavior and then there's some type of reward. And that reward in our brain is very satisfying and helps create this association between the cue the behavior, and then the reward, and thus an automatic habit that we don't have to think about. And it makes, like, who wouldn't want to offload our choices? We have so much to think about every day. The problem happens with complicated, complex behaviors. Because if you think about something like flossing, where does it happen? And who's in there with you? Well, it mostly happens in the bathroom. And much of the time, there is no one else there to disrupt that cue from happening. But when it comes to physical activity or healthy eating, you know, we could be anywhere doing anything with any number of people with any number of unexpected, you know, curveballs coming our way. And the cues depend on a stable environment. And so with complicated behaviors, it's very hard for that cue to stay stable. Now, I do want to add a caveat and two caveats. One is nothing is ever true for everyone. So for example, this isn't true for my husband, who is what I call a habiter. He gets up at 530 in the morning before he has any distractions, anything to get in the way of his cue, the alarm, you know, getting him into the basement where he exercises. So People who are very disciplined and don't have a lot of disruption in their life, what I call habiters, they tend to be able to form habits more, much more easily for complicated behaviors. But hopefully the difference between forming a habit for flossing and forming a habit for you know following some type of healthier eating plan, the distinction is clear. No, I think it is clear because eating is a complex thing. It, it, there's timing can be off. Sometimes you are unexpectedly invited out to eat, right? And that wasn't part of the plan, but you still want to be social and engage with these individuals. And so that throws you for a loop and your habit's not going to come in handy there because it's not the same routine. And, and again, oftentimes things that are common sense, 
we kind of easily adopt them and think this makes sense. I'm going to do this. Or, you know, this was written about and it sounded really compelling, but the, the problem is, or not the problem is the deal is, is that when it comes to making changes in behavior, there's always going to be assumptions underneath behavior change strategies. And if we don't know to look at those assumptions and see if we meet them or not, then we won't know if it's actually going to be the right fit for us. Got you. So yeah, one of those assumptions is that you can turn any any behavior into a habit. Maybe if you're like a, if you're like your husband, you might be able to do that. But if you're someone who's not as disciplined or conscientious, you're not going to be able to turn complex behavior like exercise program into a habit. And you have to take or, that into consideration. Yeah, not just person, not just per- personality is definitely an issue. But the other part of it is. You know, if you're managing the lives of many people and you're juggling multiple roles and responsibilities, that adds a level of unexpected chaos and hubbub that, you know, would make a habit very hard to stand the test of time. An automatic habit, I should say. Well, another issue with behaviors like eating and exercise, unlike flossing, flossing doesn't have a lot of emotional baggage. Typically, I mean, I typically, I, I get shamed every time I go to the dental dentist and the hygienist <laughs> is like, they do that test where they check your pockets to see, and they can tell, oh, you got some four millimeter pockets here. You need nine. I'm like, oh, geez. But I mean, I, I don't really, I don't have a lot of um, baggage about flossing, but exercise and diet, people over the years could develop just bad experience with those. And they, that can affect whether that becomes a habit or not. Right. And you know, that's something else that we don't think a lot about. So if we have any body shame that could be intertwined with exercising or trying to change our eating or discomfort or guilt or sense of failure, you know, for habits to form with that loop, we have to be able to have that reward. And so think about how feeling that those types of complicated negative emotions could really thwart having a, the reward that is actually needed to form a habit. So that's another one of the assumptions that you're mentioning. Okay. So instead of thinking of implementing these behavior changes of diet and exercise in terms of habits, you make this case that you should think of it in terms of life space and choice points. And this came from a social psychologist named Kurt Lewin. Can you tell us about his idea of decision-making and how you've taken that and applied it to diet and exercise? Sure. So a lot of people these days are talking about Kurt Lewin. His work has kind of had a resurgence after a long time. And, you know, Daniel Kahneman actually was talking about this idea and it was recorded on a Freakonomics episode. And so Daniel Kahneman said this was, I think he said this is the best idea, a Nobel Prize winning, let me say. You know, the man, Daniel Kahneman, was saying that the best idea he's ever heard came from his mentor, Kurt Lewin, which is that instead of trying to drive a behavior, we should look at everything that gets in its way. And so if we take that idea and we think about the life space, which is the everything we bring to a decision. At the point of choice, of any choice, that is our life space. And we bring our personalities to it. We bring our internal conflicts to it. I mean, we bring everything. And so at this life space, which is this choice point, this point of decision, we're coming with everything, not just 
I really want to follow my plan, but I feel I'll feel like a failure if I don't do it or this you know, I know I can't do it. Why even bother? Or, oh no, my phone's ringing. It's my, you know, it's my, my kid's school. I better pick it up. I mean, everything comes to this moment of choice. So the question is, which forces, and this is part of this idea that there's drivers and then there's disruptors at these, at every point of decision or or what I'm calling choice points, there's drivers and disruptors. And so which is going to win out and and whichever forces are more compelling at the at the moment are going to basically flip the switch are you going to do the choice you hoped for are you not going to do it is there an alternative to the, to the choice Gotcha. Okay. So just to reiterate, with any choice, there are things driving us towards that choice. And I typically, when we think about behavior change, we think about that, like how can we drive ourselves to make the the correct choice? But what Lewin says, you also have to think about what's disrupting, what's pushing you away from that choice. And I like Kahneman says, you should ask, instead of how can I drive this behavior, ask instead, why aren't I doing it already? I think that's really insightful. It is really insightful, and it, it's kind of interesting to note that that is also, you know, habit formation is based on a driver model. Right, and, yeah. Right? It's based on a reward driving a behavior and creating this unconscious association. So, you know, Kahneman saying, gee, we really would be, the most strategic thing we can do is figure out what is actually getting in the way and addressing those things. And then this idea of not just choice points, but life space, thinking about the decisions in the broader context of your life. You can't just think of diet and exercise as separate from your life. We we like to think we can do that, that there's sort of these separate systems, but in fact, they are part of our larger life experience. We have to integrate it not only with work, but our family life, stress levels, And if you don't do that, you're just kind of kicking against the pricks. That's exactly right. But we haven't been taught as a society, we haven't been taught to think about the contexts, the many contexts that are around these desired changes in behavior. But just like you said, it's like if people start a business and they start businesses without business plans, but oftentimes, you know, investors are going to look to see, okay, have you done your analysis? What is it called? The SWOT analysis or some type of analysis where you show that, you know, what are the opportunities? What are the challenges? What are the competitors? We, we really need to come to changes in behavior in that strategic way. And the reason why is because, we often think about changes in behavior like I'm motivated right now. This is what I want to achieve. But if we if we switch our perspective from this kind of intense motivation or the motivation bubble that gets us started to, gosh, I really want this behavior to stand the test of time through the ins and outs and ebbs and flows of my life. And that means I have to think about the context that it has to survive within. Okay, so let's talk about these disruptors that push us away from the decision we want to make. And you highlight four of them in your book. Let's talk about the first one, and it's temptation. As a behavioral scientist, how do you define a temptation? You know, I define temptation, 
I would say more from my coaching than as someone who is, you know, actually done research on temptation. My experience is how people experience it that I work with. And here's what they say. They say they feel like they're being seduced or pulled and it's a visceral experience. And it could be a pull toward that chocolate cake that they may not be on their eating plan or a pull toward the couch and, you know, HBO Max or, or something instead of the, the plan to go to the gym. And so we're used to thinking of temptation as something that controls us from the outside. But what I think is really interesting is the new theory are the new theories that are about temptation and desire. And they propose, and there's research to support them that temptation, when we feel that visceral pull to do something like that, it's coming from inside our brain. It's come, it's not coming from the chocolate cake that's in front of us. It's coming from our history of experiences eating chocolate cake, not just the flavor, but the texture and the mood we were in when we ate it or the, or the many times we ate it and who we were with and the connection we felt. And so I think it's really empowering to understand, no, it's not just that that cake looks good. It's that, and this, we could think of these as forces that are in our life space at these choice points. And so that's in that chapter, I talk about how we can kind of harness this, these new theories that are about how our brains work and the different systems in our brain to help us uh, address the visceral pull we might feel. I was going to say that um, that theory in terms of food, you apply uh, grounded cognition theory. Yes. And, and, that, and that's what you're talking about. It's like you, all the feelings you experience when you see that, I don't know, that cheeseburger, right? Like, oh, I, I, when I had a cheeseburger when I was a kid, it, like, it made me feel good, have memories of it. Like you're bringing that to with you every time you have that choice to eat a burger or not. That's exactly right. The grounded theory of cognition says is all about the sense, the sensory experiences that go with it and the meanings that go with it. And to a great extent, many of them are under our consciousness. But the really cool thing is that once you learn about these things, once you learn that certain things are there, but you might not have been aware of it, you shine a light on those experiences and then you can be aware of them and name them, which also helps you have a better able to control impulses to succumb to a temptation that you might not want to succumb to. Yeah. You, you make this, you have the sentences in its very essence, temptation is emotion remembered basically. Yeah, I believe that came from an interview I did with Dr. Joel Nigg, who's an expert in executive functioning. Yes, it's it is emo I mean, isn't that a cool definition? It's it's an emo it's emotion remembered. And but the memory can be it doesn't have to be consciously remembered. It can be unconsciously remembered. And then with exercise, there's this idea of effective reflective theory. Of physical inactivity, yes, which kind of helps explain like why, like ah, uh, we 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 want to exercise and we're like ah, uh, I don't actually know, I don't want to, and they, we decide not to. It, yes, and so I mean, those there are different theories about different behaviors, but they there are some similar, really kind of fundamental similarities, and the, you know, one of the similarities is that our past experiences with the behavior you know, contribute to the life space at the moment of choice. And if we 
had a negative experience or PE or we feel self-conscious in the gym or, you know, whatever the reason is, that those experiences, they call them in the paper, they say they tag exercise with an emotional meaning or another word is brand it. So our past experiences brand have branded physical activity and like any branding process, you know, it creates either an, a desire to approach something or a disdain to avoid it. And that's why we have to be so conscious of what these behaviors mean to us. And, and again, once we learn that, then we can take back control. Right. And we, um, we had uh, on the podcast a couple months ago, Judson Brewer, and you highlight his research as well, where he's using these ideas of grounded cognition theory and ART, this active reflective theory, to update your emotional values to these behaviors so that instead of being like, meh, like you're like, oh yeah, actually I want to do those things because I actually enjoy them. Yeah, yes. And you know, the value-based decision-making and updating the value of something. I mean, really, that was the biggest part of No Sweat was helping people increase the value of exercise through converting it from a chore into a gift. And it, even though, you know, my process didn't explicitly talk about the underlying brain mechanisms that Judson Brewer talks about, and I am a big fan of his, by the way, that is what we, that's what we're talking about. And that's what we need to do. I mean, that is part of the process. If you disdain exercise, no matter, you know, what your goal is, the research pretty clearly shows you just will not be able to sustain it. So, you know, the first step for someone is to figure out if you really disdain the eating plan you're trying to adopt or, you know, the exercise program you're trying to develop into a lasting change, starting with figuring out how to create a positive meaning and experience is really going to be the first part because those experiences are so potent. Emotion, as you know, we probably talked about this in our last interview that, you know, how we feel about something really determines whether we do it over time. So the emotions, the emotional meaning we have for any behavior is hugely impactful and we've got to be aware of that. And that is what the temptation chapter, that is, you know, we, that's the beginning. That's the tip of the iceberg on that question. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. And now back to the show. So another disruptor is rebellion. Uh, And this is interesting because why would we want to rebel against a positive choice? Well, 
you know, when I, as soon as I say it, people are going to go, oh yeah. Well, because we rebel against having our freedom taken away, you know, via reactance theory, we know that human beings are motivated to reclaim their freedom when they feel that it's been removed. So on a higher level, if we're trying to exercise or change our, the way we're eating, because we think we quote unquote should do it, or our doctor told us to, or our company is somehow either incentivizing us in ways that feel controlling or punitive. Well, I'm going to want to rebel against that. I, I actually, I have a real, I have a story to really explain this. I have a colleague who worked for a company that, in, well, I wouldn't say incentivized. There were there were programs in place that he would pay less for monthly insurance if he lost weight and went to the gym and attended Weight Watchers. And they tracked him, right? It was an electronic tracking system. And he he did all these things to get the inexpensive health insurance. But as soon as he got home, he was like, screw this, and just went to town. And that is rebellion, you know, that in its true essence. And guess what? He, he recognized what was going on and he's like, you know what? I'm going to pay the higher insurance premium because this is just a psychological nightmare and I'm not taking care of myself. So that might be an extreme example, but it really does reflect why we would rebel against something that we in theory think we really want. No, I've had that experience too. And you talk about this uh, in the book. There's these companies who have developed apps that are geared towards better eating or exercising where they'll send you a notification and say, hey, it's time to do your exercise. You just tap it and then it gives you the workout. And what the research has found is that people actually rebel against that. I mean, the first time they're like, this is great. I'm getting this kind of coach. But then after a while, like, this is really annoying. And then they just turn it off and they don't want to do it anymore. I had that experience. I downloaded this app. It was a habit app, actually, to help me floss, right? Remind myself of the floss. So it'd send me this notification at night on my smartwatch. And at first, like, oh, this is great. And then after a while, like, this is so annoying. And then it kept keeps bugging you. It's like, it looks like you're not doing your flossing, Brett. And I'm like, I just deleted the app. I'm like, no, you're annoying. <laughs> it, it, it goes from a nudge to a nudge. Yeah. Don't want to be a nudge. All right, so uh, we have temptation, we have rebellion. Another one, a disruptor, is accommodation. I think this happens a lot for people, particularly around their diet. What's the accommodation disruptor? You know, well, it, it depends. It's 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 different depending on which behavior. But let's jump jump into the example that I use in the book. So accommodation reflects consistently placing your plans, your self-care plans, your exercise needs, whatever, always behind the needs of other people or the project. So if we're talking about eating, I had a client and she had a three-family reunion every year at the same time. And people, you know, always bring these wonderful, delicious foods. And a few weeks or months before she, this very celebratory weekend happened, she had started following a new eating plan. She felt great. She was proud of herself. There was no rebelling in sight. I mean, this was, she was all in. But um, on one of the evenings, uh, one of the her her friends took out a special cake that she had baked just for this occasion. And my client felt like she didn't have a choice about eating it. She was accommodating what she perceived as the celebratory needs of the full group. And so that's an example of 
how with accommodation, how someone with eating could think, gosh, I don't want to be a bummer. I don't want to burst the bubble. I don't want to be the no, you know, the no person, you know, and that's just one very straightforward way with eating how accommodation works. Of course, there were many other alternatives to her, but she was so stuck in, I need to make sure I meet other people's needs that she couldn't, she didn't have the, the consciousness or the mental prowess to figure out the many alternatives that were there. Or like with exercise, that happens too as well. My kid needs to do this thing. So I'll go do that thing with my kid instead of exercising. Yeah. Or I, my work is always more important. It's always more important, you know, trying to get to zero in inbox just in like, oh, oh yeah, I know I had planned to go, you know, outside and take a walk, but I've got 50 emails. Let me see if I get down to it. But it's like, if you consistently make those choices, now, sometimes we have to make the choices. That's not what accommodation is. Accommodation is consistently placing your eating plans, your exercise goals, whatever they are below all these other needs. And that's an easy one to fall into because you feel like you're being a good person. It's kind of playing to your idea of altruism, but in the end, it's yes. actually, it's hurting you. It's, it's what, well, it's also what we've been taught to value in society. I mean, that's why we think we're being a good person is, you know, we have been taught to be productive and to be successful and to take care of all the people we love. But you know, that's an extreme, we, we haven't been taught that it's an extreme message, but really it's much more adaptive to be in the middle, right? If you're always taking care of yourself to the exclusion of other people's needs, then you're selfish and that's a bad thing. But really there's a middle ground that's the sweet spot. All right. The final disruptor is perfection. And I think we talked, I mean, we talked about this in um, No Sweat as well, but how's that, a dis- how's this idea of perfection disrupt our good choices? While perfection is, you know, I was, I'm going to say this is the icing on the cake. I mean, this is the cake and the icing, you know, and the platter. We've been taught to have all or nothing thinking in society. And so when we come to a choice point where we had planned to, you know, we were just talking about going outside and taking a walk and a conflict arises, if I can't take the 45 minute walk, then the only alternative is nothing. And that is how most people come to choice points. But, you know, in a way it's become a dogma that it's, we have very perfectionistic ideas about what our exercise and our eating needs to look like. And this dogma has, it blinds us to the, to the numerous many options that are right in front of us, but we haven't learned, we haven't been taught, been socialized to, th- to understand that being flexible is actually the most adaptive response we could have so that the alternative to all or nothing is, ta-da, something is better than nothing. Right. And I can see this, this perfection problem hitting people, particularly if they decide to follow some strict restrictive diet like paleo or Whole30 or whatever. It's like, well, I didn't do it today. What the hell? I'm just going to eat this giant cake. Why not? Because I've already yeah. blown it. And, and and that's what tends to happen. And research shows when you come to these choice points with restrictive strategies, it boomerangs and it's it it backfires. But you know, and again, I want to say I want to say this here because it's appropriate. This is a place also where there might be individual differences. Where you know, someone, and I think it's the minority of people, but I do know some people who you know literally have to follow their you know paleo diet to a T. The problem is, is that everyone has been taught to follow 
whatever diet to a T. And that is not what research shows results in sustainable change for most people. So what we need to do, I mean, we really need a revolution on this. We need to revolutionize our thinking, our belief systems, our mindset, so that we begin to understand that something is better than nothing. I'm going to make the perfect imperfect choice because that is what will keep me on the path of lasting change. Okay. So every choice point we have when it comes to diet or exercise, there's, there's possibly going to be a temptation there. You might have a feeling of rebellion, accommodation, or perfection. And I guess for every person, it's going to be different what that disruptor is, correct? Correct. Okay. And then, so uh, I guess by knowing what the disruptor is, it'll allow you to figure out how to approach this choice. Is that the idea? That's exactly right. And, you know, if people are interested in seeing whether they, you know, how they score on these disruptors or what I call traps, decision traps, there's a, there's actually a quiz on my website that people can take. But the thing is, is that, it's understanding what, t- again, self-awareness is what we all need to make changes that we can stick with. So just, so being able to say, oh, I know it, that this is my trap or this is, you know, one of the things that really gets in my mind. I'm noticing it. Hello, temptation. I see you staring at me. The very act of naming what has the propensity, what has the, the possibility of derailing our choice or getting us into some kind of non-optimal self-talk or self-denigration, you know, denigration, we can take some of that power away. So that's the power of knowing what, what our traps tend to be. And then to counter or like to make a, a what you call a joy choice, you've developed this acronym called POP. And I like this, this sort of metaphor you've created. These, these uh, life choices that we experience are kind of like bubbles right? Like we have this idea of of different possibilities, but everyone could be popped at any moment because of circumstances. How we respond to how that original idea pops is what you talk about with this acronym POP. So let's say we, we face this decision point with our diet or exercise, say we want to exercise. We have this plan of what our, what our ideal workout plan would look like. The choice is there, but then something comes up to interrupt it. How can this acronym of POP help us navigate that choice point? Sure. So first, let's think about it this way. It, usually at choice point, it choice points, life bursts our bubble, right? Like something happens and we think hey, we have all or nothing thinking and it just goes, our bubble goes down the drain. But instead, pop is this proactive self-owning action. I'm going to pop my plan metaphorically that we had because we can't do it. And and we can open up and release the options that are in front of us. So pop now is an acronym that we are, you know, proactively choosing the process to go through. It stands for pause because, you know, I didn't make up the wisdom of the pause. It's been around for thousands of years. It the pausing lets us both name our trap, which takes away some of its power. It also gives us a space so that we can figure out how to respond instead of react unconsciously, you know, through a trap or something else. It allows us to harness our conscious attention so that we can engage our executive functions, which is our which are our innate mental abilities that let us problem solve. So that's what pause does. Then the O in pop is open up our options and play. And that's just a fun opportunity to just think, what else can I do? Hmm, I don't have 45 minutes for my walk. 
I could walk for 15. Or maybe I go down to the basement and ride the exercise bike for five after dinner. Or maybe I see if a friend wants to take a walk uh, for 10 minutes before dinner. Or I pop into the gym for seven minutes. I mean, there's all these options always available, but we haven't been taught to think about it. And, you know, research shows that when we help people see things in a certain way, it actually helps them embrace the concept. So by the very essence of the POP process and acronym, people are learning how to think more adaptively. And then the third part of POP is the second P, pause, open up your options, and pick the joy choice. And the joy choice is anything. It's the perfect imperfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing. And that could be as simple as I am simply going to walk to the mailbox, which I might not have done. And that's going to be my joy choice today because that's all the time I have, or that's all I have energy for. And by its very essence, we are choosing to be consistent. And that is something that we can feel success about and, and joyful. No, and you can apply this pop to any one of those different traps, right? So I was thinking, as you were talking about this, I was saying, well, say like your trap is accommodation, right? You get invited out to dinner, which you weren't expecting to like, the cheesecake factory. And so you accommodate, you're like, well, I want to go because I want to be with these people that I enjoy. But like, you could be like, okay, this doesn't fit my eating plan exactly. How can I still join them in this this dinner without it just disrupting things too much. And you could say, well, I'll get a salad, a big salad instead of like the cheeseburger with the cheesecake afterwards. Like that's a way you could use this pop process to counter the accommodation trap. Yeah. I mean, you could say, you know, gee, I'd really like a hamburger and I want to participate in the celebration, but I know the hamburger isn't going to make me feel great. So how about I have half the hamburger? Like it's it's really about teaching people to make compromises that in the past would have been um, considered as quote unquote failures. But in fact, it's the compromises, it's the trade-offs that research suggests best keep us on the path of lasting change. So, and the more we do it, the better at at generating different options um, we get. So it is a process of learning and it might not be, you know, People, it, it takes time to learn, you know, to memorize an acronym pop. But I also suggest to my clients that they make a contact. So when they get to the choice point at the beginning of learning it, they don't have to remember it right away. They can just pull up pop and read it and go through the process. No, I've done this like this pop process sort of intuitively over the years because I think one of my big troubles with working out consistently was always perfection. It's like, well, if I can't do the actual workout, I'm not going to work out at all. And a couple of years ago, it just changed to, well, I don't have time to get the whole workout in. So I'll just do the main, like I do barbell training. So I'll just like, well, if I can't get the whole thing in, I'll just do the main lifts and I won't do like the bicep curls and the accessory work. I'll just clip that. Or I'll even reduce, because I'm really clipped for time, really short for time. So what I'll do instead, of, I'll just do two sets instead of three sets and that'll shorten and allow me to get some work in. And then, you know, it's not the full workout, but I got something in it. And it keeps that, I guess, that flywheel turning of, of consistent exercise in my life. That's exactly right. You know, in the past, when I might not have wanted to go into the gym for 45 minutes and do a full set of, you know, hand weights because I was just exhausted. But I said, Michelle, you know what? Go in and do 
you know, three sets of three, like literally like do a quarter or 20%. And instead of viewing it as not worth doing, view it as the joy choice, the perfect and perfect option that lets you do something. I mean, that is the new mantra. We've, that is what will get more people successful, feeling good and, and staying consistent. It's so counterintuitive in a way that if we give ourselves permission to do less than the ideal or the bullseye that it's somehow we're failing, but it's the opposite when we let ourselves do less, we actually do more. No, that's the thing. When I, Every nutritionist I've talked to, health expert i talk talked to, the thing they say that uh, will lead to lasting success is you just have to be consistent. And that perfection, I think for a lot of people, the perfectionist thing gets in the way of being consistent because they just, it's all or nothing. So if you can just do something, that is probably better for you in the long run than just not doing anything at all. And can I just add something right right here? Sure. When I actually last week when I was giving a keynote, someone raised their hand and said, "Well, how do we stop someone from creating a bad habit of, you know, not doing anything or not doing enough?" And, you know, it's a great question, right? But the answer is the other way doesn't work. The other way for most people, which is trying to aim for a bullseye, doesn't work. So would you rather have people do less of, be consistent with doing less than, you know, might be an optimal dose of something, or would you rather have people do nothing of the gold standard? And, you know, the, the, the logic is clear that a better model for the way our, our human brain works and the way our chaotic lives are lived is that we have to learn how to be flexible. And, but it's one thing to tell people that being flexible is the solution. And it's another thing to get them to really feel great about it. And that's the point of the book. I want people to celebrate when they make the perfect and perfect um, choice. Well, how do you do this process, this pop process, when you're feeling particularly stressed or you know tempted? Because it is a, you're bringing in your executive function to do this, and you know the research has shown when you're really stressed out, like that executive function kind of goes to the back burner, and our lizard brain takes control. Is it just yeah. a matter of practicing? It is a matter of practicing, and you know, I find that when I'm stressed, you know, the act of noticing that and saying, can I pop it? Like I use pop for everything now. I don't just use it for choice points with exercise and eating. I use it, you know, when I might be irritated at someone in my family, you know, can I pop this? What are my, let me pause, let me open up my options here. Let me pick the joy choice. Yes. So if we can name the stress and see it, then we immediately take back some of the power in that situation. And then we can shift into the, you know, harnessing our executive functions. You know, I really like what Judson Brewer says, which is get curious. So as a first step, I think getting curious, hmm. And that's, he even says that, hmm, I notice that I'm feeling stressed right now. I wonder what that's about. I think the friendlier we are, the more curious we can be instead of just feeling like, I can't believe it. Or when we notice and have awareness, that gives us an observer perspective. And again, this is, you know, paramount. This is core wisdom in the mindfulness movement. When we can self-observe, we really do have much more control. And so the idea is that we 
can notice the stress and then shift into the pop process. And I found it very empowering to say, I'm going to pop that stress or I'm going to pop that anger or I'm going to pop that and my plan and see what else what else I can do. Yeah, as I was reading your book, I, I got, you were saying that you, you use this process for things beyond eating and exercise. And I think it works for other complex behavior change as well. I mean, I think typically people make near resolutions like, I want to be less angry. And I think this, this pot process can help you. Whenever you feel angry, it's like I think about, okay, what's going on here? What are my options besides lashing out? And then you pick the one that's a better option besides life. And one that you enjoy. Yeah. Well, Michelle, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? I've had so much fun, Brett. Thank you. People can go to my website, which is my name, michelleseeker.com. And I know that this is being aired on the 25th of April. So if people are intrigued by the ideas we're talking about and want to learn more about the science or method, if they order before the 26th midnight tonight, they can um, participate in my four session live book club with a workbook that's where we'll go deeper into these issues. So, but there's more information on my website and the quiz too. Fantastic. Well, Michelle Seeger, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest there is Michelle Seeger. She's the author of the book, The Joy Choice. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about her work at her website, michelleseeger.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Seeger. We find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you on a listening to podcast, but put what you've heard into action. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.